Welcome to episode number 99, the three most important words. Now, just a quick reminder that with podcasting, the best method for the podcast to reach the most individuals is through you, the listening audience. If you have a moment, please post this podcast to your social media feeds. I don't know how many of you have picked up on the details of my life through these podcasts. I've mentioned previously that my career has been in the commercial construction management. Specifically, I'm a corporate scheduler. While the title may sound important, the reality is that my job really consists of helping the field teams to create, update, and monitor how they are going to build a building so that we get it done on time. What many of you probably don't know is that while certain parts of a building must be built in a particular order, there are many ways by which one can be built, meaning that while the steel structure must come before the exterior skin and interior finishes, just exactly how that exterior skin gets placed on the building, in what order the interior areas of the building are finished, are really going to be choices of the owner and the contractor. Now, often these choices are driven by time, efficiency, and of course money. From time to time, issues occur with the labor materials and of course efficiencies, and a project starts to track late, meaning that if the project keeps at its current rate and time, it's going to finish beyond its end date. Now, the remedy in almost every case is to increase the labor on the job site, to insist to, to assist in getting things back on track. However, there is something you learn early in construction about increasing materials and labor on a project. Placing more people and more materials on a job, or increasing the hours, does not always provide for a one-to-one -one translation. For instance, if I have 20 people putting up drywall in my building and we are behind, making them work 60 hours a week instead of 40, does not translate into an added 50% more work being accomplished. Often, there exists what we call a law of diminishing returns as you add labor and time. People get tired and they need rest. People make far more mistakes in the last 20 hours of the week than they do in the first 40, and those mistakes also translate into time and money. Now, this is not meant to be an economics lesson of commercial construction. However, this law of diminishing returns is actually very important in our lives, and it is no more truer than when a person deals with mental illness. At any given time, each of us possesses a capacity to accomplish the work that is before us, and that means spiritual, spiritually, physically, and emotionally. A portion of that capacity will be for personal uses, and the other portion we can give to others. Now, if I, I have discussed regularly, mental illness is going to diminish one's capacity to accomplish the work of the day. What can be added to this diminished capacity is the shifting of resources from the service of others category to the personal service category, meaning that when we are deep in an episode, our overall emotional, physical, and spiritual capacities are reduced by the symptoms, and we tend to move what small resources we have from helping from the helping others category to the managing our illness category. Now, first of all, there's nothing wrong when our illness strikes, and we have to devote most of our resources to survive ourselves. Uh, with very little left over for those around us. We tend to move from being able to serve others when we are not in an episode to only being able to minimally help ourselves when we are. Most of the time, we are even going to need others' resources and help during the low and anxious moments of a bewildering episode. I realize that the retreat of capacity can cause serious problems for a family and a spouse, especially when the father or mother is afflicted. The spouse, in this case, who is not affected, 
will be required to pick up the lack of resources or lack of capacity when the person who is affected cannot attend to the children or the everyday tasks. Even in the relationship, the non-affected spouse will have to develop more, far more energy to maintaining the relationship, working through any problems, and picking up where the other spouse can no longer function. Now, this ever-changing capacity can place serious strains on a marriage. And even if you look at it, it can place serious strains on any relationship that is developing. We as human beings naturally desire reciprocation, meaning we want our significant other to reciprocate our gestures of love towards them. It's just part of communication. When one person cannot because of mental illness, it can feel as though the affected person has lost interest, lost love, and no longer desires to be in the relationship. Now, this is entirely not the case, but it can truly feel this way. The main problem with mental illness and this diminished capacity is that no one but ourselves knows just how much we have been affected. We don't have an episode thermometer or barometer we can place into our mouth and read just how low we are or how paralyzed we've become by our anxiety. Most of the people around us have not experienced mental illness, and even if they have, it may not be in the same way. We generally don't look any different on the outside during an episode, and so our change incapacity is going to be troubling for the person who doesn't suffer. Now, remember in previous episodes, I have said that our, man, our minds do not like the unknown. It has a tendency to fill in gaps. Our varying capacity brought on by our illness can really cause serious problems within the minds of other people. Our spouse, boyfriend, girlfriend, children, parents, all of those minds expect that our capacity is going to remain relatively the same from day to day, and that if it does change, something will change with it so that it's at least noticeable. Why? Because that is how they experience life. Their mind does not fully understand how someone can be so incapacitated so quickly by some inside unseen force. Mental illness for this reason, and perhaps others, can be almost frightening to those around you. They can only understand it in limited ways, but will probably always have difficulty when it comes to understanding why one day you can take on the world and a few days down the road you can barely get out of bed. To have a relationship with someone who has a mental illness will take a great deal of communication, patience, and understanding. Uh, there are likely to be frustrations and miscommunications simply because mental illness brings on a brain fog that limits our ability to express what we are feeling, how we are feeling it, and what can and cannot be done. While dealing with mental illness and close relationships is a major concern, we live in a world that simply does not care that you have a mental illness or that I have one. It really does not care if you have diminished capacities. We live in a world full of commotion and movement. Nothing is ever really stable when it comes to the outside world versus the home world. Things change all the time. People come and go, and we are under consistent stresses and strains, balancing home, work, and church life. One of the unique and perhaps troubling problems for those who suffer is a particular tradition found within, within many democratic societies and also within the church. For lack of better terminology, I'm going to call, the, call it the pioneer immigrant tradition. The tradition goes something like this. We have every opportunity in our society to go and work and provide for ourselves and family. The harder we work, the greater the reward. Because of the opportunity afforded us by our freedoms, we should be able to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and make our lives whatever we want them to be without serious help from others. 
Now, we see this tradition in our politics, our social identities, and even within the church. We struggle as a society and as a church sometimes to view mental illness as a disability that needs serious help. I personally think it has to do with the mind and this comprehending the unknown, but I'm not sure that the reason really matters. Our independent pioneer nature contributes to us feeling guilty, feeling lost, feeling worthless because we cannot participate in life as others do, and all we can say is that we don't feel well. So we tend to avoid situations where we might be pinned down to some type of service that we cannot render, or we say yes when there's a great likelihood that we will not be able to accomplish what we've been asked to do, or worse, because we have said yes, we expend what little capacity we have to accomplish the task the work, or the calling to leave other more important matters to suffer. All of this leads me to three most important words one must learn when they suffer with mental illness. Those words are, I can't today. Learning to say no, or I can't today, provides for one of the main methods of really mental illness management. That is, we need to learn to manage our stress levels and capacity and make sure that we are taking care of the important matters with what little energy and capacity that we have. Our church tradition and perhaps mantra of do more, be more, and become more is really important to the process of change that leads to eternal life. Now, refocusing our efforts, doing more in areas of greater spiritual importance is really part of the repentance process. However, when we see and hear the mantra, either secretly or overtly, it can cause a terrible feeling of guilt. That guilt comes because we cannot do as others do and serve as others serve due to our illness. As members, we are asked to serve others, and we rarely talk about the opportunity to be served. If you think about it, you have to have someone willing to be served and someone willing to serve. Now, service towards others should bring a, great, a greater spirit of peace into our lives, and actually so should being served. But in my case, and I think for many others, being served can feel a lot like failure due to this kind of pioneer spirit. This mantra of do more, be more causes a very, fairly serious problem when it comes to the gospel and mental illness. We can think that if we do more or be more for the Lord and work harder for his purposes, our problems with mental illness will simply go away. And it can feel terribly defeating when we find that doing more is not always the answer to our problems and in fact leads to further difficulties with our mental illness. I found this out early in my life while attending college. College, often due to its nature, provides for undue stress and strains on our physical, mental, and emotional bodies. I had just been diagnosed not too long ago, and of course, was I had diagnosed with bipolar in college, and of course, was in the middle of one of my episodes when I was asked to be a seminary teacher. Now, I was ill-prepared for the calling, given the newly discovered illness and the stress of school. I was not yet at the point where I felt I could really tell a bishop, and so I really accepted the calling, and I wanted to accomplish the calling. It wasn't long before I had to return to the bishop's state that I really could not fulfill the calling and remain in school. It was really too much for my illness to attend my, to my college studies and the rigors of seminary instruction. Now, could the Lord have given me the strength and ability to teach and still be in college? Yes, of course, but he didn't. Part of the reason is that we must learn a valuable truth, that we cannot run faster than we have strength. And this is an important principle of the gospel that for me has been one of the more difficult lessons of my life. I'm not sure that I've done very well to learn it because I still suffer with illnesses that limit my capacity in serious ways. 
Beyond my personal struggle, we must all learn to balance our lives and learn what we can and cannot do in specific instances. This doesn't negate having faith or stretching to meet the demands of a calling. The scripture in Mosiah does not say to stop running, but not to run faster than we have strength. The real key is that we are running. We must work with the Lord, our leaders, our capacities, and abilities to really meet the needs of those we serve as best we can. Frequently, we are going to find our capacity does not match everything we would like to accomplish. At first, I would expect frustration, and then we often go to the Lord to ask for strength to match our expectations. However, I found the Lord rarely answers this to the affirmative, unless it is necessary and is often only for a short time. For those of us who suffer, it is important to remember that the do more, be more tradition will apply to us differently. Yes, it does apply, but in addition to refocusing our efforts towards more spiritual things, we will also need to prioritize and consider what is most important to accomplish with the capacity that we have. Yes, this will mean good deeds will go undone, and we won't get as much done as the next-door neighbor or the next-door ward member or even the community servant. But it is never about quantity with the Lord. It is about quality and the learning process. The Lord's ultimate goal is to bring us to eternal life where we can continue to bring forth spiritual life. Our mental illness is important to our progression and learning how to best work within our limitations brought about by the symptoms is what the Lord wants of us. He does not desire us to fall into the sprinter cycle. Run as fast as you can until you collapse and then wait through the misery for our emotional, physical, and mental mental systems to catch up. This process does not provide for a quality learning experience or even life in general. Consistent patterns of living the principles of the gospel do. So reading 20 minutes a day is far better for our spiritual goals and eternal progression than two hours on Sunday, but nothing during the week. The same can be true for any principle of the gospel. Consistent behavior is what the Lord desires, not passionate overreach and recovery. So doing more may be more along the lines of using my 20 minutes more effectively. Or if we consider being within a serious episode, maybe 10 minutes is sufficient for our capacity that day. We can adjust the gospel to our capacities within the illness. The Lord really expects us to do this, and to do it without feeling guilty about only getting 10 minutes rather than our 20. For me, as I have learned to work with my capacity, I found a few things important to the process. The first is, of course, that when I feel the do more, be more tradition pressing upon me, I look first to what I might do better rather than add additional work to my capacity. I already know that I'm likely pressing towards the boundaries of my capacity, and so I look for improvements in my already defined consistent patterns of life. Certainly, there are moments when the Lord has asked that I change patterns, and I do. But for the most part, I look to see where I can improve rather than add. I've also found that the Lord desires for me to add capacity when that I've also found that if the Lord desires me to add capacity, he adds it where needed and often only for specific purposes. Second, I know I have a mental illness with capacity issues, and as much as I don't like to admit it to myself, I need to have alternate plans. As part of this plan, I prioritize what should be done and where my efforts would best serve my family than myself. So if my mental illness decides that today is the day where my capacity will be far less than normal, I can adjust without anguishing about what I need to do to 
what I need to cut out of my daily life or who I need to tell that I can't do something. Now, this can be tough at times to decide what makes most sense, but I have found that if I do a little preparation up front, it helps a great deal. Now, when these moments come, and it is critical to communicate, it is critical to communicate to those involved what is happening. Remember that the mind abhors the unknown. Better to let those people involved know what is happening than to have them fill in the blank, and they will fill in the blank because that is what the mind does. Three, I have learned to work with the Lord regarding those things that are most important and when he will provide added strength to my efforts. I have learned these things by my own experience, and I am going to assume that is the way the Lord works for the majority of us. We must go and do and find the capacity at which we can function. I've also learned to say that I can't. Or, I can, but I have some limitations. I have learned to communicate better with those around me. This doesn't mean that everyone accepts my limitations or even understands my illness. And it even creates some frictions at times. But for me, being more open about my struggles with my autoimmune disease and the anxiety and depression that follow, chronic pain diseases, has actually provided for a better understanding. Now, are people not going to ask you to do things, including callings, because because they know of your illness? Yes, I have found that those who don't understand the illness tend to shy away from asking you to serve, mostly because they don't understand what you can and cannot do. Most of their concern is really about the unknown. So a discussion as to what makes sense for you with your capacities actually can be very valuable, especially to leaders who would make decisions. Now, are you going to feel guilty about not accepting a calling or not being able to serve? Yes, probably. But that guilt has far to do more to do with the tradition than with the Lord. We feel guilty about not fulfilling a cultural tradition, not necessarily breaking the commandments to serve one another. I don't believe that the whole world needs to know about one's limitations and capacity issues. So I am selective as to who I tell. Well, okay, at least I was until this podcast. You're going to fail. Are you going to fail and take on more than you can handle? Yes, likely multiple times. That is also part of the process. Learning to live within the capacities given you by the Lord is going to be difficult, and it can take time to find a good balance. Are you going to have to cancel or have someone take your place once in a while? Yes, you are. But if you have spoken about your concerns before it happens, it can certainly lessen the impact. For instance, if you're a president of an organization and, for instance, cannot make it to church because of your illness, and you have warned your counselors that this might happen, and even perhaps the bishop, that from time to time you need someone to take your place, then your lessened capacity really does not tend to have any serious impacts. The most important thing to remember about your diminished capacity is that it has been given to you by the Lord. This is not a punishment, but a training tool that the Lord uses to develop certain characteristics and traits in our lives that will in turn provide for celestial life. Now, I rarely feel that way, but I can tell you that what you experience with mental illness is incredibly important to your eternal life and to those around you. Your illness is truly a blessing rather than a curse, and learning from it rather than fighting it will produce the person you were meant to become. May the Lord bless you and keep you in his loving arms and help you with these capacity issues. And may you do your part so that the Lord can do his. Until next week.